Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're on Team Human, a thread of continuity from the last age into the next. A celebration of what yet remains, what can be retrieved, and what may still be invented. Humans and our friends have been around long before this civilization began, and a whole lot more of us are likely to be here after it's over if we intervene now on our own behalf. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, musician, producer, and inventor of the music video, Monkey Michael Nesmith. We as humans are manifesting the experience we have, and we have to learn how to do that so people don't get hurt. Michael will be sharing his insights on what it was like to be among the first to live inside the reality TV show in which we're all living today. Here we come, marching down the street. Hey, hey, we're Team Human. This is a fun show today. Sorry if it's not serious enough for the moment. I know we're watching our friends get shoved into unmarked cars in Portland as America's Stasi force gears up for next January's armed defense of the presidential palace against our election results. But part of our collective resistance against the rise of fascism is pleasure and humor, weirdness, and open-mindedness. Yes, we must oppose injustice, but we've also got to understand whatever we might be doing ourselves to fuel the energy behind it. And I think the virus taking down America right now is a great example. And as you know, I spend a whole lot of time trying to understand the emotional kind of psychic logic behind the crazy we're seeing around us. So 
I spend a lot of time, I read the Twitter feeds and watch the videos of QAnon and the other folks whose frustration with neoliberalism has spilled over into the deep end of what I've always called fractal noia. That's the need to connect one thing to another thing to another in order for stuff that might otherwise be random to make some kind of a sense, to find patterns in the chaos. So it's not just a random virus, right? That's too difficult to to cope with. There has to be a, a doctor at Harvard who mailed something to China, or Bill Gates went on Epstein's plane, and Tony Fauci's department in the government got a million-dollar grant, or Ghislaine Maxwell got arrested by the FBI, and somehow all this points to the imminent arrest of thousands of pederasts in positions of power. Right? That's the event that the QAnon folks are looking forward to, of which this fake virus is just one leftist propaganda tool. Or maybe the real virus is the thing that these guys released, or both. And that's the weird part. It's because the process they use to assemble their narratives, this online collaborative fiction enterprise of QAnon, is highly collective and accepting. It's like the improv technique known as yes and, where one person says something and then the next person adds something onto it. You never have to correct or negate what the person before has said. You just add on, reframe, go meta, and connect more dots to it. So even if things are contradictory, they can accept both and then just kind of blur things and move forward. So the virus can be invented in a lab in China as a weapon of war against America, but it could also be this non-existent thing, just a common cold that Democrats are inflating in order to hurt Trump. That's why there's posters that say COVID ends on election day, right? But it could also be invented by Gates and Fauci in order for Gates to develop a vaccine that will inject nanobots into us and so on. Now, Trump, clearly, he wants to keep all this craziness going. His best personal defense of his administrative failure is just to sow chaos, whether it's distracting us with social issues or dropping tiny QAnon crumbs about the deep state conspiracy behind the virus. Bury the science and bury the numbers and free yourself up to tell whatever story you want to about this virus. But there's also a real and distinctly American logic behind Trump's rejection of fact. In his worldview, all illness is just spiritual or mental. That's the church his father brought his family to when he was a kid, Norman Vincent Peale's church, still standing in Manhattan. He's the guy who wrote The Power of Positive Thinking. It was somewhere between pure Christian science and the secret. Basically, it's a form of secular magic where you practice mind over matter. Illness isn't biological so much as mental and spiritual. It's the placebo effect as a life strategy, medical science included. So yes, 
there's a cynical political war going on by non-believers. The right wing says that the Democrats want the virus to explode because they're using it to attack Trump. The worse the numbers get, the more fear they can create, the more stores and schools they can keep closed, and the more evidence they have that Trump has failed. Trump and his people want to get us to stop wearing masks and closing businesses and schools so that America doesn't look and feel so hobbled by this germ, particularly in October and November. So they turn wearing a mask into a curtailment of civil liberties and freedom. And of course, they create more contagion in the process. But by the logic of the power of positive thinking, if this really is a mind over matter situation we're in, then we don't want to be wearing masks, reminding ourselves with every breath or interaction that there's this virus we're trying not to catch. It's weakness. It's surrender. It's negative thinking. Likewise, those numbers that the Democrats keep putting up on CNN and MSNBC, those terrible numbers about hundreds of thousands of sicknesses and deaths, those are bad news. They're a downer. Stop looking at them. It's like focusing on the cancer cells instead of the healthy ones. That's the idea, right? That if we stop believing in the virus, it will go away just like that, like magic. That's what Trump himself said at the very beginning. And these aren't just his crazy ideas, but they're this religion he was taught as a child. And and, and the, the fake it till you make it approach that got him rich, that got him laid, that got him famous, and yes, got him to be president of the United States. Right? He didn't actually do any work. He wished himself there. So there's these two sides here. There's the Democrats who need numbers to go up in non-compliant states in order for their science to be upheld. And there's Republicans who want the numbers to go down or at least off the screen so that people can do whatever they want and not have to worry about killing grandma in the process. So what side do you want to be on? The side that wants the virus to kill people just to prove our point that Trump and his magical thinking is so dangerous? Right? It sucks to be put in that position. But the reason why this magical thinking has gotten out of hand, it's not because we haven't repressed it well enough. I fear it's because we haven't engaged with it openly enough. Too many of us have embraced the most reductionist version of the scientific model, negating the felt experience so many people have of there being more wiggle room, more systemic phenomena than simple cause and effect reductionism allow for. So, Yeah, we get mad when the right-wingers oversimplify. More testing increases the numbers of positive cases. That's what they're saying. The more you test, the more positives you'll get. And that's true on the simplest level. But what they're missing is that not only are the raw numbers going up, but the percentage of positive tests is going up. Test 100 today and get five positives. Test 1,000 next week and get 100 positives. That means not just that more tests means more positive, but it means that they're going up from 5% to 10%. So things are a bit more complicated than meet the eye. But they're more complicated on the other side, too. Take something like vaccination, because we in the thinking scientific side, we want people to get vaccinated. And we're not even allowed to discuss whether vaccination is a great long-term strategy for public health. I mean, I get, and, and we all get why vaccines 
work, what's great about them, and that there's only a really tiny population who have negative reactions that we still don't quite understand. But we're not supposed to talk about them because it scares people. Doesn't that sound a bit like hiding numbers of virus cases because that scares people? But I get it. It's the whole purpose of public health. You have to sacrifice. I hate that word, but you have to sacrifice a few people for the sake of the herd. And it's true. Your kid is much more likely to get killed in a car accident on the way to the doctor's office than they are to get permanently impaired from the vaccination they get there. But that logic, it doesn't quite take into account the bigger picture about what we're doing to the immune systems of everyone with vaccinations and even more macroscopically to the very location of our species and the greater biological system. Like fertilizers and antibiotics, it may be a bad gardening practice. You know, we have to admit the shortcomings of our various belief systems if we're going to make it through to the other side of this civilization-wide challenge. And I think we find it in the, in the union of these two opposites, the ability to see the virus as both scientific, biological, and an informational challenge. Yeah, we have to avoid the traps that Q is setting to prevent us from dealing with this effectively, right? Q wants us to die. Q wants chaos. Q is inspiring a yes-and style of participatory conspiracy theory in which we're all tempted to engage in when the truth that we're killing the planet and the planet is going to kill us back is just too difficult to accept. It's easier to think about the five Russian girls that Epstein raped on his island with Bill Clinton and to imagine it's the tip of an iceberg of a global pederasty wing that either created the virus or will be exposed by it. But that's just a worser version of what we're doing on the rational, scientific, and closed-minded side of this public health crisis. Our cytokine storm is a metaphor for our inability to process the data, what the virus is telling us about our place in the bigger and smaller life systems of this planet. The story playing out before our lives is the morality tale we need to be seeing. That's the information in the virus. That's the part that indigenous people get and that I think we're missing. There's information in there that the human species needs to hear or process. The indigenous folks I've spoken with are not worried about the collapse of our civilization. They say they've seen this all before, and while it's totally avoidable, it's not a threat to the whole. But to see things that way requires us to transcend what we need the virus to prove for us and to look instead at what we need to do to respond to its call. It's not just complicated, it's complex. Don't ignore the science, but don't reject the magic. That's more than the anthem to the left-right divide. 
It's a number one Linda Ronstadt single from 1967, written originally for the Monkees by Monkey member Michael Nesmith, but rejected by the show's producers for being too twangy. Serves them right for ignoring the supposed person who was supposedly writing the Monkees songs. Michael Nesmith, the monkey with the hat, wasn't just a reality TV star, a kid playing music on TV. He wrote and performed for decades since the show, introduced to television comedians like Jay Leno, Jerry Seinfeld, Gary Shandling, Whoopi Goldberg, Arsenio Hall with his TV show television parts. He produced movies like Repo Man and Motorcycled with Peter Fonda and hung out with Jack Nicholson. The monkeys had a number one song before their TV show was ever broadcast, right? They were actual musicians, but somehow the TV sitcom led them to be largely ostracized by real rock and roll musicians and journalists. For me, though, there's something of the opposite, right? I'm a TV head. I'm a media theorist. The Monkees were the first TV show and first band I ever knew. For those of you too young to know, the Monkees were meant as an American version of the Beatles. They were conceived by television producers, the guys who eventually made the movie Easy Rider. And they did the casting call, and they put together this band, and then they had the four guys in the band play characters in a TV sitcom about a sweet but unsuccessful rock band called The Monkees. But the same Monkees also went on tour, doing the songs from the show, and most of them were written by people like Neil Diamond, and Carol King, Tommy Boyce, and Bobby Hart in the Brill Building in New York, and produced by Don Kirshner, right? So they were a band, and they were a TV show about a band. But they weren't really a band or a TV show, and I knew that too. They existed in the liminal space between reality and TV, before there was a thing called reality TV. And they're, they're a band, but they're playing a band. And all the while, this one monkey... This Mike Nesmith, he seemed to know what was going on in his eyes. As you watched the show, he seemed to know he was inside a weird experiment. And I felt like I knew that too. And I reached out to him with a letter when I was six years old. And he finally reached back to me 50 years later when he read Team Human. It's really one of the best things about having gotten to where I am as an author, a thinker, a podcaster, whatever it is that I've become, is that I have the opportunity to engage with my heroes, to reach through the TV screen and test my sense of what was really going on. Here we come, walking down the street, we get the funniest looks from Everyone we meet Hey, hey, we're the monkeys And people say we monkey around But we're too busy singing To put anybody down can't imagine anybody not knowing who you are. But for those who don't, I thought I'd tell you a small story. When I was growing up, I was born in 61. So I was uh, five years old, or six really, when I was introduced to the monkeys. And I had... I was a TV child, right? The typical latchkey, tail end boomer, early Gen X kid. Yeah. And I had two media experiences that were formative the monkeys and Batman. And 
What those two shows had in common for me is that they seemed to be self-conscious of the fact that they were television shows. There was almost direct address. And you, more than the other monkeys, seemed to be almost like a Jerry Seinfeld character that you seemed to know that you were inside a madhouse. (laughs) And I remember... In first grade, we had a letter writing project, and I wrote a letter because on the back of my copy of Meet the Monkeys, it says on the bottom back, write to the monkeys, care of Screen Gems, 1334 North Beachwood Drive. Uh, So I wrote you a letter. Uh, I wrote you a letter in first grade, and I asked you if you wanted to get out of that house because it looked to me like you wanted to get out of there. What an astute question, Douglas. And I had asked my mom if it was okay, and she said, yes, if you wanted to, you could come and live with us. So I sent you a letter saying that if you really did want out, which I seem to perceive, you could come. And I heard back from you 50 years later, of course, right after you read uh, Team Human, and I'm so glad now I get to talk with you. But um, was that your experience? I mean, reading uh, Infinite Tuesday, it it seems in some ways that was your experience. It was. And in Dallas in the 40s and the 50s, it was oppressive. I lived, if you read Infinite Tuesday, I lived on on the border between a white section and a black section, although it was illegal to define them as such. It was clearly, you know, beyond the 7-Eleven, the white man does not go, and the reverse is true. So it was a, an amalgam of influences. And I just listened, and I just watched. And, and as I did that, the more I understood about what these guys were doing and how they were doing it. And it was all music-based, and I didn't know how to write, read, or even really play music. And it pointed me in a direction of thought that said, you can do anything with your thinking. So do that first. And once you have that, then you can, you know, go off down whatever road you want to go. So that was, that was the sort of the beginning of it. I can't remember what your original question was here, but you seem to be aware of your body in the tube yeah. the way the other people in there weren't. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I was, I don't think it was to any great effect. <laughs> and I, I think the executives around there was a, who is this guy? And so at the risk of seeming a little bit too self-centered, I thought, you know, you are really fucking this up, Naz. I mean, this is, this is not what they planned on. They planned on something a little bit more malleable, a little bit more movie star system of the 40s. And you're none of that. Uh, right. And actually, if you look around at your compatriots, neither are they. They're all rebels. They're all getting out of there, just going out in their own backyard. So it was an important understanding that I did have control over the media. But even more than that, the media was establishing itself in the homes of millions of people. By establishing, I mean, you know, what do you mean the monkeys don't exist? There they fucking are right there on the TV. Exactly. (laughs) I believed it. I believed that you all lived in that house. Of course I did. Yeah, yeah. The five-year-old mind and and the eight-year-old mind. Right. And I started to realize in later years, this was where the counterculture was going on, and it was just trafficking the pubescence of the onrush of the next generation, mm. which included the Jobs and the Wazes, and they were all of our heroes. And they they caught on to it. We've got the technology to do this. We may not have the talent 
to paint a beautiful sunset, but we've got the talent to render one digitally. And right. so that happened. And as it did happen, I was watching and I thought, just ride this road, just stay right with them. Don't do anything else. But like an idiot, the grand idiot that I'm proving out to be in my life is that I didn't record. <laughs> I didn't record any of it. So I, you know, but they did though. I mean, yes, but, they but did. You're, God bless them. <laughs> you know, but you're like, it's true. So you basically, and, and I got this from the book, of course, is you were hired to play young musicians on a TV show to not to be musicians, even though you were, but to play musicians. And then it became something of a reality show, though, because you guys decided we're not just characters. We are musicians. We do want to play music. And you kind of elevated from being fictional characters to being kind of the first reality TV show. Well, here, here, here's, here's me and Bob Rafelson leaning up the, against the back, I think, it was of his uh, GTO that Pontiac had given all of us for promotion <laughs> at the corner of Gower and Sunset outside the production studio. And for people who don't know, Bob Ravelson was one of the producers of the show, the director of Easy Rider and head, friend of Jack Nicholson and a, a, a counterculture uh, a film Hero. legend. Yeah, that's right. We were, we were talking and, and I was disgruntled. Because I didn't like the way we as principals were treated. That, not that we uh, you know, didn't get limos and free lunches, but that the ideas were not taken seriously. And I had learned that when I'd gone to the first writers meeting sometime um, months before, and I realized they were all looking at me like, what are you doing here? And that I was so far out of the model, the system that they were in, <laughs> which was the studio model, that it, it was a legitimate question. Why is one of the principal actors over here listening to us write the script? So that's the last time I would, had gone to a script meeting, but I had all these ideas, which you and I have seen now in Elephant Parts and all the other stuff that followed on after the monkeys. And I, I thought, well, I'll just do more of this. And thus was born television parts and the and a, and a couple of other things that you probably haven't seen, like Dr. Duck's super secret all-purpose sauce. And <laughs> there, there's just stuff laying around now, I'm, I'm sorry to say, you know, may, may be hidden in piles of detritus. But that was the, the, the big landing for me, uh, even though I landed to an empty island. It was uh, it was thrilling. <laughs> it's so hard to believe, though, that if you've got Bob Rafelson, Jack Nicholson, uh, uh, Peter Fonda, and, and those folks hanging out and making a show like The Monkees, and they're all tripping, that they must understand that they are lacing the media diet of young people with a psychedelic message. Is this was stealth psychedelic indoctrination, wasn't it? Or was it really just a commercial intended as let's just make some money off, off the Beatles? You know, since I'm, since I'm bound to tell the truth, uh, the answer is no. Uh, there was no sense uh. that, uh, <laughs> that <clears throat> this medium was going to inform anything no sense that the actors informed anything. It was all a, a great, great gray blob to the filmmakers. And this went all the way down to uh, Shepard. I think Jerry Shepard was his name, the, the editor of the show. The interesting story and way he came to start editing. 
so that the shows looked like they do. And there were all kinds of experiments that these guys started taking off and doing, but you didn't, there was no apparent causality, no apparent, Uh. no breakthrough, no uh, epiphany, nothing. It was just, okay, guys, run around. (laughs) Well, because it did it, though. The effect of it, you know, though perhaps accidental, the effect of it was formative on minds like mine. It made me into this crazy psychedelic media theorist, self-conscious, you know, nut. Yeah, yeah. and here, let me inform you, if it is information, and and just give you as as, as a gift from my time in the monkeys, is that it was all real. It was all true, Douglas. It did. It did form us. That's that's who we were. That you did not make a mistake and think, "My God, this thinking is making my life." It really did make our lives. It made the '60s. It made the Northwest Corridor be the single most powerful capital for information and entertainment and all of the things that we see rolling out of the Pacific Northwest. This has become the world center for it, not only in the amount of money that it makes on the stock markets, the biggest companies in the world, but in just how it transforms our culture. And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I'm i just along for the ride. I look at it once in a while, I'll mm. poke the side of the boat, and I realize this is an inflatable nest. Don't fuck around. <laughs> but the way you talk about it in, in your autobiography, in Infinite Tuesday, there's this great sentence. You say, you, you, you're talking about the monkey's experience, and you say, the detritus of a collective dream we were all waking from, each in our own room, and each afflicted with our own case of celebrity psychosis, informing us about the furniture in that room. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad I wrote that and not somebody yeah. else. And thank you for pulling it out. Well, like because that. it's important for those of us who were living vicariously in that room to yeah. know what was happening. <laughs> yeah. 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 Where are we? <laughs> and, and we're still, you know, grinding that answer out from the man at the fairground. You know, what is your question? And right. it's, uh, it's, it, 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 it's a right answer. But it is so hard to swallow. It's implausible. Mm. It, there's no apparent causality from television to the real world and from the real world back to television. You can't see it. And I studied and studied and said, I realized it's because it's metaphysical, Nez. Right. It is not physical. It's metaphysical. And, you know, for all the airy-fairy stuff that attaches itself to that term, it still is a real term about a real thing that's going on. And what's going on is just left untended yep. by the culture that you and I live in. Yep. And that's, you know, it's what we media media theorist people call the media environment. And it is real. It's the landscape. It's the air we're breathing. Of yeah. course, it's impacting the way we make sense of the world in which we're living. That's right. And there's a topology out there that is giving clues as to the kind of nourishment that it's providing to mankind or people kind or humankind it's providing a nourishment to you and me that is very far beyond 
collard greens and Brussels sprouts. But people resent it and they resented television uh, in a different way than movies. It's like oh, the Beatles so could right. go, they can make Hard Day's Night and, and you've got playwrights from Germany like Peter Handke saying that these are the most brilliant media ever created. Yeah. If you make a TV show like The Monkees, which is essentially the same kind of thing and in some ways deeper and harder because you're actually living it for a year at a time and they make you a pariah. I mean, you couldn't just hang out with Stephen Stills as a colleague it's like do they look down on you as like oh you're the tv people yep 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 that was it <clears throat> it was an instant an instant transmission into the land of the pariah and it was it was like you go down you know down, walking down santa monica boulevard you would get cat calls and insults just hurled from random passing cars and you know when they ah. when <clears throat> they recognize me you know you're a sellout you're a jerk Everything you've ever done is wrong. And as a kid who was, uh, you know, just coming into his, what I thought of my, as my prowess, it was devastating, uh, absolutely devastating personally and individually. I just didn't have any place to go with it. So I just sat on the street corners in back of uh, the Troubadour with uh, Neil Young and played the harmonica. Well, there were people, though, there were some of us, you know, in the same question, Batman, Superman, uh, you know, uh, 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 Apple, PC, Beatles, monkeys. And there were those of us who understood that the monkeys was a self-reflexive permutation. It was a feedback loop. The monkeys were the monkeys were native to the cybernetic reality in which we're living, where yeah. the thing is feeding back into itself. Yes. And that's why it's crazy making. Yes. Well, and, and it's self-consciously doing it. Right. It's doing it on purpose. It's doing it because it knows when it get, closes that feedback loop, it's no longer feedback. It's food. Right. And it breaks the divide that you're talking about. All yeah. that black, white, which yes. side of the tracks are you on? Yes. Yes, it does. It relegates that to the meaninglessness that it is. You know, how can you judge something because of its color? Well, you can't. And right. and and the television exposed that reality. You can't. You must judge it on some other basis. Is the person being honest with you? Is it manipulating you? Is it trying to do this? All of those things the writers, as far as I knew, were conscious of. And this was the great awakening, the LSD awakening that we were all going through, like, just be a good guy, be a good person. War is not healthy for children and other living things. And those posters were plastered all over the sets and every place else. We were highly conscious of the line we were putting out. So was Tim Leary, you know, he wrote about it in his book, The Politics of Ecstasy. Mm -hmm. And, and <clears throat> so were a lot of those uh, long ball hitters of whom I consider Larry, you know, one of the top. And he was, uh, uh, everybody was kind of getting onto it saying, hang on a minute. Is, are the monkeys creating television? The producers of, of screen gems creating uh, the monkeys or is, are the monkeys creating their own reality? What's going on here? The whole chain of cause and effect is convoluted. Right, bolted back in on itself in some sort of strange, you know, for some strange origami, and it's not. It is. It's not a part of that process at all. It does not start start off with a rectangular sheet of papers. It starts off with everything in the universe, and you can just fold it in there the way the great abstractionists did, 
and and look at it, and you can see uh, the earth coming to life. That's why it's so interesting, though, at the same time that we realize that, that it's this kind of, you know, cybernetic Eastern whole thing without cause and effect, without top or bottom, without, you know, manager or managed, you know, it's post-Marxist, post-everything. And Leary, I was friends with Leary for 20 years, end of his life. He hated the Marxists. He said, they're not psychedelic. They don't know how to have fun. They don't, uh, they always, they always break things into this and that. Yes, yes or no. Yes. You know? Yes. But yes, for true. all of that, though, there were so many fights in the monkey scene over who gets to actually write and produce the music. Well, that was the, that was bizarre to me because what had happened at the Brill Building was an enormous mistake, not unlike the United States of America in the early 20th centuries. And for people who don't know, the Brill Building is where all this music, like Carole King and Marvin Hamlish and Boyce and Hart, all those folks like worked in this building just churning out tunes for Every every major artist at the time was Neil Sedaka was in the in the Brill Building. Everyone was in there churning out the hits and commercials. Don't forget the commercials. Right. This thing was a commercial factory. Jingles, and, you mean? Yeah, and jingles and and it was. So I didn't understand, however, how much money they intended to make off of this thing. And so when I said, "Well, look, could I have this and could I have that? And could I have because since I wrote them." And I produce them and I bring them, can I have at least this of it? Because at, at the time I didn't have anything. And to, I'm going to characterize it as grudgingly. They said, okay, but uh, I don't know that it was actually grudging. I think there was, a, there was a time I was standing talking to Bob Rafelson and, and uh, he said, you know, we could have picked any four guys, Nez. And I said, yeah, Bob, but you didn't. <laughs> what you did was you picked us four and we have brought to it the force of our characters, the force of our personalities, the force of who we are. We're non, non-existent. We're not trivial. We didn't just happen to fall into this randomly. This is a, this is a, a combination of the gods, not to get too far north. <laughs> and, and he stopped for a minute and he said, yeah, you're right. Well, right. It's like your kid looking at you and saying, you're just saying, well, my kid could have been anyone. It's like, uh, yeah, but I'm your kid. You know? <laughs> very, very well said. <laughs> Off of some new blue dream, I guess. Guess I got. <laughs> I don't know what makes this marijuana cough. You know the one I'm talking about. Yeah, uh, it's those 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 pens. Those what? You should those little pens, those vape pens. You're supposed to smoke marijuana from a joint like God intended. Yeah, well, I don't use a vape. I use <laughs> okay. I, I I use rolls. I go oh, okay. and buy rolls, and this is and and there's some really cool stuff out there. Mickey Hart makes some uh, stuff I can sleep with indicas, and uh, Chong has something called Chong's Choice that I think he he, he shares with. Uh, Cheech, but <clears throat> that stuff, it's its like the size of a Sharpie or maybe twice the size of a Sharpie. It comes in a glass tube and it doesn't have a hazmat warning on the outside, but its it probably should because, man, that stuff is huge. And you take it and or smoke it and it dawns on you pretty quickly that it's a feather bed, that it's the most comfortable enormous feather bed that you've ever been in. And then, you know, the smile starts to go and right. stay until you fall asleep. I love the new dope. I think it's, I don't know whether it is really new or not. I guess it's just conjure. Well, it's, it's certainly more focused and 
<laughs> it's, it's got more more specificity to it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you have a, a migraine on the left side of your head. Then have oh. this one. <laughs> it's great. So, so it wasn't just the music writing that came from there. Though you guys had um, the Wrecking Crew was was playing your 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 backing backing tracks, weren't they? Well, not really, uh, Douglas. You see, I stay away from this as a topic of conversation. I'm talking uh-huh. to you because I am you know, know you and I understand your depth of intelligence and your outlook. And and I think this is something that I would love for you to include if, if it makes sense for you to do it. I'm not, I'm not thinking of it as a redemption of the monkeys, as so many people do. Hmm. Well, you, you, uh, you stole the Beatles idea and then you made uh. it into something pretty big for yourself. Didn't you shotgun? And I, I, I think to myself, what a shitty world. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the way everybody's just it. I mean, I think social media helps that along. You know, it's social media has helped re- and digital in some ways has returned us to the yes, no, right, wrong, black, white, you know, everything's so discreet, you know, and we had, we had with the television environment, we were so breaking that down. It was, it was getting cybernetic and people like Steve Jobs thought that digital would make it even more cybernetic, that we we would get more erasure of difference and you know this sort of big blue marble uh we're all in this one network sensibility but it's ended up you know going the other way well it did it it was uh but i don't think it's gone past a tipping point if you'll allow me that phrase uh, yeah i i think what stephen was pointing out was a kind of great ballast weight that we can't see because of the size of the ship we're on. You know, mm. our, our, our ship, as Bucky taught me and you, was, is, the, is the Mother Earth. And so we got to take care of it. Like it's the only ship we've got and, and, and get it rolling. And I think what <clears throat> Stephen was reaching at and what you have well and beautifully articulated is this process by which uh, art, is born and i know he knows well what it means to be at the fountain be at the source but Mm. it may be that he was just discovering what kind of power this stuff gets when you plug it in and that's that dawned on me very early on you know this is this is a kind of power over the audience that they yield when they come in the door and give you the 20 bucks they want like a like a three-year-old to tickle their stomach so that's exactly what i do (laughs) right but but jobs also knew the power he was putting in people's hands i mean i spoke with him about this oh yes called the computer apple for a reason this was the forbidden fruit the tree of knowledge he was he was thought of himself as prometheus you know handing the apple to the humans yeah 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 and he did in a certain in a certain way you know, I mean, too bad he's not around to see what happened to his iPhone and, you know, and the how the addiction specialists got in there and, uh, you know, turned it into something else. But Well, I, I think, don't, don't you think that we're going to see some uh, stuff coming out of uh, uh, the other nations of the world, you know, China and, and England and those places? Do you think they're going to be pushing product among each other in a way that's going to make it all fulfill the promise of, I don't know, socialism, capitalism, whatever economic system governs it. 
I think something else, I, I would agree. Yeah. You know, and we'll complain, you know, we'll complain that they're copying us, you know, the same way that uh, the yeah. Beatles complained that you were copying them. Yes. But it's like, no, it's actually, we're, we're taking the torch and running the next lap. That's right. You know? That's right. Well done. And, and that is the, that's a, that's a good metaphor. And just in case, I know this is out of order, but just in case anybody does want to blame the monkeys for ripping on the Beatles, take a listen to the monkey song, Magnolia Sims, and you will hear the origins of the Beatles honey pie. I mean, this was the Magnolia Sims. It's like the first modern record that has that fake old record sound. That's supposed to sound like a 78 and it's yeah. got all the EQ down yeah. and it's this little ditty. And it's like, what, two, three years later, Beatles come out with honey pie and it's like, Oh, wow. Look what they did. Look at that brilliant Martin production thing. I'm like, yeah, it's the Beatles. It's, it's the monkeys. You Beatles. <laughs> I'm in love, but I'm lazy. So won't you please come home? Well, you may carry that torch. I will never touch it. No, I'll you can't. You can't because you're a monkey. You no. can't. <laughs> it was lost on him until I said it. I said, yeah, but you didn't choose any four. You chose us. Right. And that's what right. happened. That what's happened with the with the what happened with the American audience was they chose us. They looked at it. If they had not chosen us, we would have ended up as some afternoon television dreck. But they chose us. And the five-year-old said, that's what I want to do. That's where I want to live. I want to live and I want to go out with David and do parties and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, blah. I wanted Peter Tork to be my best friend. I wanted to be you. I yeah. wanted Peter Tork to be my best friend. And I wanted Mickey to sing my songs. There I you mean, go. That's <laughs> where you go. And that and what and what else would a band want? <laughs> right. That's right. Which is an accessible thing. We were not looking it wasn't a matter of idolizing. You didn't idolize the monkeys. You wanted to be the monkeys. Yes. It's a very different thing. Oh boy, is it ever. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm so glad that you're on this tight wire. I don't think you can fall off. I think there's some kind of glue that keeps the the shoes of you and I stuck to the wire until we get out of the other side. Yeah. So I, I don't have a complete confidence in that, but I have a lot of confidence in it. No, we're the happy, it's the happy mutants. It's a, it's like you push through nihilism to this other place of like, okay, maybe none of it does matter. Now what? <laughs> mm-hmm. 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 You know, the thing I was wondering, and, and this is getting going down another whole rabbit hole, but, you know, I listen to your music, you know, songs like uh, uh, Rio and Magic uh, and, and my favorite, you know, monkey song, Papa Jean's Blues. These oh, are, yeah. you know, lovely, sweet, almost, I don't want to say naive, but they're, they're, they're open, heartfelt, straight up, innocent songs. Love songs, yeah. Nobody's so no longer lonely. Thanks for waiting. Finally, one day, happiness is all rolled up in you. And now, with you as inspiration, I look forward to destination. Sunny, bright, that once before was blue. 
I have no more than I did before But now I've got all that I need For I love you and I know you love me But then when I see the way they're produced in elephant parts uh-huh. they're, they're the, when, when you put them in television They become almost self-satirical, tongue-in-cheek and, and I'm wondering, is that because the medium of television doesn't really let you just go straight up the way a record can, that you have to comment on it? You've never seemed to make a video that was just straight uh, trying to just express the, the love or the, the, the pure intention of the song. And this is talking to someone for the audience to know that, that he originated the rock video. He, he was made the very, and it's in Wikipedia. He's even credited with the, you know, making <laughs> so it's real. True. Well, so it's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, um, let's see, what, what's the best way to answer the question that, uh, well, first is get, get you to restate it. It seems that the music itself is innocent and pure and loving. But when you make the television adaptations of these songs in some of the first, in the first rock videos ever made, they're always a little bit tongue in cheek or they're commenting on themselves. I mean, your, your work never goes to like straight up Oprah, you know, <laughs> right, <laughs> which maybe right. is why you can't do it. Right. Well, I, I don't know about, yes, I, I, I take the point. What starts to to come through, and it doesn't, it's not occlusive in any way, but is the mortality of the song, the humanness of the song. That doesn't have the same infinite arc of its life that um, an older song or a different song would have. All all songs are different, and they have different forms, like us humans do, and. It, we present ourselves to each other in that form, and a song continuously presents itself to us in the same way to millions of people. And that phenomenon right there is something is going on at that at that point. Now, I can't tell you what it is. Even if I was a perfect metaphysician, I, I wouldn't be able to say the words, I don't think, that would just suddenly provide an epiphany of what I'm talking about. Something happens at the point of transmission that realizes what is being transmitted on a manifest plane. I don't think I can say it any different than that because it's just so confusing to me, but that's the best I can do. And that's when it's just music without the TV. Right. And as the TV begins or the moving image starts to inform that part of our thinking mechanism, we realize, oh, that's not in just the pure music. That's been added. So now it's a different thing I'm listening to. And the because humans are so intelligent and man is so intelligent, it immediately recognizes this thing. It says, oh, yeah, that's the electronics manifesting the uh, uh, microtronics. And, right. and we realize it. And we're, oh, yeah, that's right. Is there a science for that? Well, yes, there is. I don't know what it is. <laughs> well, McLuhan would. McLuhan would say that music is a hot medium yes, and television's point. a cool medium. Good point. Good point. You You're know? so right. Boy, he was on it. And when I started reading his book, I got chills because I thought, ah, there are others. <laughs> I have found one. I'm hearing the light from the window. I'm seeing the sound. 
sound of the sea My feet have gone loose from their moorings I'm feeling quite wonderfully free And I think I will travel to Rio Using the music for flight As you look at today, sometimes I wonder that the Operation Mindfuck that you and Abby Hoffman and everyone from the 60s was doing, in some ways it worked too well. You know, <laughs> we, we untethered people from their 1950s stuck reality, but now that like the Trump side is using Operation Mindfuck to untether us from even that. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know? believe me, I'm so aware of that, and that is my day's work. I get up in the morning. The sun comes over the far hills. It's this beautiful light. And I just follow it because I realize that this is the only work to be done is this translation of uh, uh, mind into manifestation. We as humans are manifesting the experience we ex- experience we have. And we have to learn how to do that so people don't get hurt. That's way too corny and simple. But the simplicity of it is part of its beauty, and, and it was part of the monkey's beauty, too. People just missed this deep undercurrent of, uh, of, of spiritual truth. Just trying to be friendly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. How they tapped into that, Douglas, I'll never know, because these are, these are guys that had, had a dungeon. <laughs> I'm serious. They had a dungeon. And but that's a- how you know you were on a mission from God, right? <laughs> I you know? guess so. I, I, I always thought I'd like to go move into the dungeon, so maybe, maybe not so much as a crusader. Uh, well, thanks so much. Thanks for, for talking to me now. Please stay healthy and, and locked down or whatever you got to yeah, do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And everybody, uh, you could find out more about Nez at videoranch.com. You can get all sorts of stuff and get the, get the book and, and some videos and records and, or just start watching some old episodes of the monkeys and you will see something you maybe didn't notice before. Ooh, that but, sounds so promising. Douglas. <laughs> I, I, hope, I hope you're right. I hope we're both right. I felt so silly for all these years, but I think it, it will prove itself out at some point. Well, I think the Buddha felt pretty silly too. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, he should have put on a shirt. <laughs> Thanks for being on Team Human. Our guest today was songwriter, producer, and media hacker Michael Nesmith. You can find out more about Nesmith and his music at videoranch.com. And also check out his book, Infinite Tuesday, now in paperback. You can find out more about Michael Nesmith and all of our guests at teamhuman.fm, where you can also become a supporting member of this ad-free show. Join listeners like James Cropshow, Stephen Bombera, Chris Reed, Scott Johnson, and Susan Lear. Get access to our new Team Human Discord discussion channel, as well as any day now, a new archive of never-heard conversations between me and Timothy Leary, Terrence McKenna, John Barlow, Willis Harmon, and more. You can read my articles and the Team Human Manifesto at medium.com slash team dash human or just buy the book Team Human, your perfect quarantine reading or listening material. 
Team Human is produced by Josh Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.